Hello, and welcome to another engaging episode of Cyber Speaks Live, the InfoSec podcast recorded in front of a live online audience, giving you, the community, a voice that can be heard around the world. We're live Wednesday evenings at 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. And now it's time for your host, Duncan McAllen. Hello, everyone. My name is Duncan Macklin, and this is Cyber Speaks Live. We are coming to you once again Wednesday evening, 7 p.m. Central Time, for you to be able to join in the dialogue with our guest co-host and myself talking about cybersecurity topics that matter to you and giving you a voice that can be heard around the world. Now, this week, I do have a very special guest that I can't wait to introduce, but before we do, I'm going to go ahead and introduce a new segment that I'm really excited about. Um, I shouldn't be, because what we're actually doing is calling out the top three cyber clusters of the week, and I think you know what I mean by clusters. It's not a group of servers that share resources. <laughs> we're talking about those things that really just should not happen in cybersecurity. So. With that, let me go ahead and introduce our first cyber cluster of the week. Now, this one, um, <laughs> it's basically uh, the best of webs script compromise. Now, if you're not familiar, many of you probably are and don't even realize it, but a lot of websites out there use these trusted badges, right? To say that they're using SSL, they have proper certificates, their site maybe has had some kind of audit to be able to prove that they have proper security controls in place, etc. But Best of Web, basically, they sell this service for their trusted badge. And they provide you this trust seal that is able to be displayed on your website. Now that happens through a script that they have hosted on Amazon CDN or Content Distribution Network to you know, indicate that that website is secure. Unfortunately, they have now had their second compromise of that script that is now injecting keystroke loggers. The first occurrence happened just a few weeks ago, April 24th, and the other just last week wasn't disclosed until Monday of this week, and they are, uh, let's just say, doing a little bit of backpedaling, because how do you issue a trusted badge when you can't even secure your own script? Now, the next one in our list, and I'm probably going to read this one from the release that I picked up today. Um, many of you in the U.S. may not be familiar, but there is this show in uh, Europe called Eurovision. And the premise of this show, it's a little bit like American Idol, except this one is focused on uh, essentially songwriters. So it airs original songs that haven't been previously recorded or what have you. And it's a competition style, right? They're performed live uh, through Eurovision's um, television show. And, you know, I assume it's the same kind of voting and whatnot that we have here with American Idol. However, this week we had an interesting little situation. They're actually in their semifinals. 
And just before, uh, or, or as the first round was beginning, the website for KAN's television was interrupted Tuesday evening for online stream where it was basically hacked to show warnings of unfortunately missile strikes and images of blast in the host city of Tel Aviv. Uh, the messages read as such like risk of missile attack please take shelter immediately and Israel is not safe you will see. These are the things that were appearing on the screen it's almost you know, George Orwellian in in a certain sense. You you kind of want to laugh at a hack that takes place for a national television station, especially during something like a, a massive um, reality TV kind of thing. But with this particular situation and knowing the situation in Israel and how volatile it is, how much fear those citizens live under in a day-to-day -day basis, not knowing when the next type of attack will take place. Obviously, you know, we, we, we have to take this one seriously. But thankfully, um, according to the chief executive of KAN, as far as what they told Israel's army radio, they were happy to say that within a few minutes, they managed to assume control over what they're calling a phenomenon. So interesting situation there. That's number two. And our number one for the week has got to be the WhatsApp vulnerability. Oddly enough, seems to be attributed to the Israeli base NSO group. And this particular one only requires the WhatsApp call feature to ring through to the device and from there able to inject spyware onto the uh, device in question. Now the interesting thing is with this particular vulnerability, the user does not even have to pick up the phone call. It just has to ring into the device and they're able to inject their malicious code from there. So huge uh, vulnerability with that spyware slash malware um, injecting untold number of <coughs> devices around the world. So if you are a WhatsApp user, be sure that you have updated that software appropriately. Now with that, and particularly with having a very nice malware segue, I'd like to go ahead and introduce tonight's presenter. Um, now, joining me live uh, from his home there in Florida is Roger A. Grimes, famed uh, evangelist with No Before, and I'm gonna let him talk in a bit about his company and what they do. But Roger, do you mind just going ahead, joining in here and telling the folks listening in a little bit about yourself? Sure, be glad to. Uh, thanks for having me, Duncan. Uh, it looks like an awesome podcast. Uh, I've been doing computer security for like 32 years. <laughs> you know, I've earned all the gray hair. 
uh, you know, started as a PC technician and then was a PC educator and then, you know, network technician and network, uh, the network leader. And then I eventually moved all the way up to VP of IT. Uh, but the whole time I was doing that, I was always doing computer security on the side. I even started my early career, uh, you know, disassembling viruses for John McAfee or even for McAfee and Associates. Oh, uh, wow. Yeah, did learned assembly language to do it and disassembled viruses for years. I've been fighting uh, malware and hackers for most of my career in one form or another. Uh, eventually, I was, <laughs> through college, I became a CPA, went to an accounting firm, but realized I chose the wrong profession because I was <laughs> an accountant ever. Um, so eventually got into computer security and worked for uh, many different companies, including Foundstone, McAfee, Microsoft for 12 years full time and then uh, moved to know before recently where I've been with them over a year and absolutely love it. Fantastic. Fantastic. And just, you know, a 30 second spot on know before, what do they do? Just real quickly. Uh, they're the world's largest security awareness training vendor. So we, you know, train people to be careful about social engineering and phishing attacks and do simulated phishing. Cool. Okay. And we'll get into that in a little bit more detail down the road. So. The reason I invited you on the show, uh, obviously I've known of you for a while. We've been connected on LinkedIn and follow each other on Twitter, etc. But you posted an article and for those of you listening, Roger really did downplay who he is and what he does quite a bit. Uh, the man's published, what, over a thousand magazine printed online articles published numerous books and you know he, he's a very well-known figure in this industry and if you're not following him on twitter or following some of his publishings online one of them he is a columnist with cso online uh and in there he had published an article i want to say it was may 1st so just over a week ago or two weeks ago at this point uh, that was titled Nine Types of Malware and How to Recognize Them. And what really caught my attention was the subtitle where he says, think you know malware, here's a refresher to make sure you know what you're talking about with basic advice for, follow, for, excuse me, for finding and removing malware when you've been hit. Now, anytime somebody says to me, think you know malware, my answer is hell yes I do. This is what I do for a living. Right, you know, I've been in endpoint security for years now. So the then leading in, here's a refresher, made me just say, okay, yeah, let me go take a look at this. In reading through this multi-page article on CSO Online, uh, it really just got me thinking, got me reminiscing about things that happened, you know, at, at this point 20 years ago. Uh, and really just how there's almost this chronological evolution of malware from when we started 30 years ago with viruses and worms to where we are today in the types of attacks that are taking place. And I thought it would be really nice to be able to have Roger come on the show. Let's go through each one of these. Let's kind of do that refresher, but let's also educate ourselves about the real threats that we're facing today, along with the countermeasures to be able to defend our organizations against these attacks or remediate our environment 
post breach, right? So with that, Roger, um, let's go ahead and just start with the list and we'll go through each one of these nine malware types, talk about what they are, where they came from, what we're seeing today around them and what kind of countermeasures might be necessary. Does that sound good? Yeah, yeah, sounds great. All right, so with that, number one, viruses, right? So talk to me about viruses. Well, so early on, like you said, back we went really back to the early 80s and stuff like that. It was mostly Trojans and worms, and then viruses came on the scene really with Richard Scolorenta. He made the first uh, PC virus, it was an Apple II virus by a 15-year-old kid named Richard Scolorenta. Who, who as an adult eventually ended up running a multi-billion dollar AOL company called Warner. Uh, but when he was 15, he made the first like boot virus. And about the time I started getting into it, it was 1986, 87, Pakistani brain was out there, stone virus, Jerusalem virus, things like that. And, and all of a sudden, out of nowhere, these viruses just really exploded on the scene. So late 1980s, early 1990s, and they moved from the DOS to Windows. And the definitive characteristic of a virus is that it's uh, it's vi it's a malicious code that infects other files. So you know that's really its definitive feature, and we don't have a whole lot of viruses. I haven't run against into a, a virus in my day job uh, probably in ten years. But if you look at some of the malware list and things like that, there's still some small percentage out there. It seems inflated to me because like. I literally never run into them, but they are, they're, they're a malicious code that replicates by infecting other files and it can replace those files or modify those files. They mostly died around the time of uh, Windows 3.11 because the DOS viruses didn't do a great job of running over into the Windows world. They caused all kinds of file problems. And Microsoft fought, fought back with different features that would overwrite modified files and the scanners came out. And then to be more honest with anything else is that the, the malware writers found out that they could have the, the same amount of success as they have with viruses or maybe even more so with Trojans and Worms, which didn't have the complications of blowing up the systems that they were on. That was really the main reason why they died. They got harder for them to successfully manipulate the files they were infecting without causing you know, unintended problems. And the other code was easier and worked better. Absolutely. So again, if you think about it like a human, right? That's pretty much the only time we should refer to a virus is if it is infecting the being, right? The files in this case. Yeah, you know, it, it's funny, every, it seems to be the media and Hollywood, they call all malware viruses. And to right. be honest with you, so from a technical perspective, I kind of always shudder a little bit because I know it's probably not a computer virus. Usually what they're referring to is not a virus, but eh, the whole general perception of the public is everything is a virus and most of the people don't care. I mean, it's kind of, uh, it's funny. I kind of liken it to the gun guns and that a lot of the media will refer to almost any like assault type rifle, they call it an AR assault rifle, and that's not what it stands for. But eh, you know, you got the general media referring to it, everybody kind of knows what you're talking about, and the only people that get bothered by it are the purists. You know? Right, yeah. And you know, it's kind of like, what's the difference between that AK-47 and an AR-15, you know? It, yeah, there is a, there's a distinct difference. They both do damage, but 
there is a very distinct difference between the two. But I do think it's important for us to know the difference, even if we're maybe not using it, you know, technically correct all the time. For us, we're the experts in the field. We need to know the difference because if I tell you, Duncan, that, hey, there's a virus here, that really means something different than if I tell you that it's a worm or a trojan. Exactly, exactly. In uh, good point. So let's go ahead and, and go to number two then. What's the difference between a virus and a worm? How do worms propagate? What's their method? Yeah, worms are self-replicating, meaning they don't intentionally most of the time uh, in, impact other code. You know, they're going to travel and rove around the planet using their own code, you know, knocking on, you know, different ports and services and things like that. Uh, so, you know, when a worm's on your system, you're getting additional files. Like when you have a virus, a lot of times, you're not gonna see your file count go up. You'll see your modified file count go up, but the total number of files on your system stays the same. With a worm, you're absolutely going to see your file count go up. And it doesn't modify other files, but it, it may use other services and systems to help spread itself. You know, like the, you know, SQL Slammer worm, that's the fastest one that came out, you know, impacted most of the SQL servers on the internet uh, within 10 minutes when it went off, I think it was 2005, you know, and it essentially just buffer overflow to SQL port and then immediately turned around, replicated itself and tried to infect other machines. That's a worm. Yeah, exactly. And I think if I go back and take an honest appraisal of my past, I would have to say when I got acutely aware of these types of threats was with the I love you, right? Oh, yeah. that, that one, I think it kind of woke up the entire world to these types of vulnerabilities. And, you know, I think it also woke up Microsoft, you know, to a certain degree, because all these things were happening. 2000, 2001, 2002, and mm -hmm. it was 2002 when Bill Gates, you know, put his fist down and he said, yeah, enough it was, is enough. It was, it was, you're exactly right. It was actually the code red worm and and, and, and I love you and this that, that, that caused them to wake up and say, hey, we have to fix these systems. We're not doing as good of a job. So I forget, what, I forget the name of that memo, but it was like the Holly, the Trust. Halloween trustworthy computing. computing initiative, right? That TCI. And, you know, for those that maybe um, aren't as familiar, that's ultimately what led to us having a Patch Tuesday, right? Because Microsoft pretty much stopped all new code development for about a six month period during that whole memo and, and the trustworthy computing initiative. Yeah, Michael Howard and David LeBlanc and Steve uh, Steve uh, Lipton, Lipton, I got Steve's last name, but they kind of came up with the whole idea of we need to make trustworthy code and let's take a, you know, a step back and teach everybody secure development life cycle. But that really came out of uh, two or three people's brains, uh, Michael Howard being one of the main players and he's still there, uh, great guy. Awesome, yeah. Uh, so we still are reaping the benefits of that. Unfortunately, it, you know, like you said, came about because of things like Blaster and SQL Slammer and I Love You and whatnot. Um, and really quick, I'm going to break, I'll break uh, script a little bit in that, uh, you know, it's kind of interesting that I said, hey, we have to make more secure code. And you know, we were talking about what, what apps, WhatsApp and all that stuff. What I was amazed when I worked at McAfee and Foundstone, we when we Foundstone got acquired by McAfee and we started reviewing the McAfee code, how bug ridden it was. And what it taught me was that 
the security apps that we use all throughout you know our daily lives the stuff that we rely upon whether it's firewalls antivirus you know secure telephone apps or whatever they're actually just as bug ridden if not worse than everyday software it's it's funny they make security software but it's not like they have this special talent to all of a sudden write bug-free code it's just as bad as everything else and so all your security apps are you know attack vectors exactly i pretty much distrust anything that reaches out beyond my box right and i kind of joked back in the mid uh 90s my first real it job i kind of touched on this in our last episode but i was responsible for a novell 10t migration and windows 3.1 to 95 and you know when we were talking about the server migration piece and, and security coming up especially working for a regional bank uh you know i flat out told them the only way you're going to have a secure server is to or a completely secure server is to unplug the son of a bitch put it into a safe turn that knob and hope nobody has a combination right um same holds true today and you touched on secure software development life cycles uh you know that's we have to get to a security first mindset in order for us to start churning out some more secure code and applications and cloud services and whatnot um until we truly have that security first mentality you're right it doesn't matter if you're talking about an office back office or security application they're all going to have vulnerabilities yeah it's always a trade-off yeah so you know we talked about uh spyware and stuff earlier the next on your list though is trojans so yeah trojans are like uh, they've been around forever uh, they're the simplest ones to write, right? Because you just write this program that masquerades as something else. Uh, and they kind of, you know, someone runs it. That's the probably the key component that in order to spread, you have to social engineer or trick a user into running it somehow. And, uh, and then it does its own malicious thing. The user thinks it's doing one thing. They think that they're, you know, running some sort of, I don't know, or maybe even opening a, just a, a PDF file to take a look at some legal document, but really it's executing malicious code. Uh, probably 90% of today malware is Trojans. And, and I'll be honest with you, it's a lot easier to clean up Trojans and worms than viruses. Viruses were a nightmare. I mean, on the antivirus systems, you know, antivirus removal things had to go and figure out what was the original part of the file that was infected and then try to piece it back together. And it didn't always successfully do it. With a, with a worm or a Trojan, you just delete it. And, and I gotta tell you, removing worms and Trojans is 10 times easier than removing a virus ever was. I mean, to be honest with you, my life got easier when Trojans started to kind of take off. Because uh, you find them for the most part, unless it's something like a root kit or something that's really going out of its way. These days, what's amazing is the malware doesn't really even try to hide that well. You know, back in the day, it would spend a lot of its time trying to hide and keep you from taking it apart. You know, 99% of the malware today is worms and Trojans, and I can remove it manually by killing the process and deleting the file. That's insanely easy compared to how it was in most of the 1990s and early 2000s, trying to get rid of those email worms and viruses and stuff like that that were just all over your system. Right, 
All right. Now, do you have any good examples of some current modern day Trojans that folks are struggling against? Um, I mean, I guess not, uh, not off the top of my head about anything in particular because there's just so much of it. I mean, there, you know, in an average year, there's 100 to 200 million unique pieces of malware, the vast majority of which are Trojans. Uh, the vast majority of Trojans are, you know, modifying your system. A lot of it's, you know, adware, or spyware, uh, which we'll kind of talk about, uh, which is, you know, trying to get people to, you know, if it's adware, it's trying to redirect your system to look at you know, you think you're going on the internet to look at, uh, you know, Elvis videos and it redirects you to cat videos or something like that. You know, it's trying to redirect you uh, to somewhere that you don't want to go. And spyware is pretty common uh, in that it's trying to spy on what you're doing. Um, probably some of the most insidious Trojans uh, are the stuff that like steals money from people's bank accounts, you know, financial theft, cryptocurrency theft, where the old, or you know, I, here's a good, here's one that I think is really kind of insidious is all the new, uh, or all the banking Trojans. So you run a Trojan piece of software and then it sits in the background and it waits till you visit your financial vendor, stock market vendor, or banking system. It actually looks for keywords. And then when you log on in, let's say to your bank, it, in the background, it starts a second hidden browser session and it transfers all your money to, you know, some Russian bank account or something like yeah. that. You think checking your bank account to, to see what your bank balance is and lo and behold a couple hours later or, or the next day you learn that all your money's been transferred i mean that's the stuff that sits in the background or even you know some of the stuff that's going to ask people for money they're starting to sit in the background and 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 figure out whether this person has a lot of money or not a lot of money if they do have money where is it so that they can be mm -hmm. nice and where they ask you for money or how they hurt you and just seeing if if you're a viable target or not you know that's one of the things that we're also seeing is they're using all these data points once they have that foothold to try to assemble number one can you even afford to pay some kind of you know uh, monies or how much are they going to be able to take if they continue to monitor and, and go after this particular target yeah or you know they they'll break into let's say like a, a bank someone that does banking or an escrow agent and go oh they're getting ready to close some home loans and they'll modify the person's email system so they send uh fake wiring instructions to the people that are getting ready to make deposits uh, to buy new homes a spreading one and then they'll they'll put a uh, you know they'll modify the email system of the escrow agent so that when she he or she sends the legitimate letter it gets deleted and uh and it deletes the malicious copy they sent so the escrow agent is completely oblivious the person that's getting ready to close in their house while well, they're getting an email from their escrow agent that looks exactly like that they were expecting for the amount they were expecting with the wiring instructions. They have no idea that the wiring instructions are sending it to some other bank. Uh, so that, the insidious ones where they, they're they hanging out for a while and trying to figure out how can they maximize you know their financial gain. Uh, those are certainly interesting. Yeah, absolutely. And it, it, it's scary to even think about being at that pivotal point in your life you know about to purchase a new home or what have you and 
this type of cyber incident occur and you find yourself completely you, you lose your house you lose your money you, you almost never get the money back and then everybody that's involved in escrow agents the banking people the mortgage office <clears throat> they all get paid at the end well no one's getting paid <laughs> right now one of these that kind of did catch me off guard as i was going through your article is number four which is hybrids and exotic forms um can you talk about that for just a second yeah, I mean, so I would say it's really hard today, today to say that most malware has different features and functions, so it acts like different things. You, you won't see a lot of viruses out there, but most Trojans are really worm Trojans, uh, you know, or vice versa. Sometimes they'll, they'll be, they can be parasitic virus-like. Sometimes they can infect the, you know, they'll infect a file or a USB key. Like think about Stuxnet, you know, mm -hmm. one of those or Conficker. Right, those are worms, but they reinfected. You know, they would sometimes act like worms. Sometimes have virus-like things, like uh, con uh, Conficker and Stuxnet would infect the desktop any file, right, to help uh, do their auto run spreading. But then once they got to the new platform, uh, they would then become very worm-like. So today, most malware has kind of certain combinations and characteristics of both a worm and a Trojan, and then sometimes also a virus, depending on what it's trying to do, when it's trying to do Yeah. And you kind of talked about botnets being in the same type of categorization often as well. Yeah, that's, you know, huge, huge money. You've got all these, um, you know, young people, kids that make these bots, you know, which are really just worms and Trojans that mm -hmm. kind of collect tens of thousands to hundreds of thousands of computers to be their zombie bots. And they, so they, you know, you have one person actually writes the bots and updates the bots, you know, every day they're updating them. And they have, you know, 24 by seven tech support that they, you know, support over Skype. Then you've got the people that create the bots and sometimes called botnet herders and they'll create them. They usually want to create them in smaller networks of a couple thousand to tens of thousands, but they may in their overall number have, you know, a million different computers under their control. And then they rent them out or sell them to people. Or sometimes, you know, they're made into botnet kits where the, you know, the guy buys a botnet kit for five grand, fires it off and starts collecting money. Yeah. It, it's almost, again, going back to my law enforcement days, it, it's almost like buying a weapon on the black market, right? And then this criminal going out and firing it, you know, but you have these guys that have the hordes of weapons that they're able to sell on the black market. They have a captive and ready audience and all of a sudden bad things happen. Yeah, yeah, the people the people that the cops arrest oftentimes, the ones collecting the money really aren't that technology savvy at all. They just bought rented something. And then the different people they'll try to have plausible deniability. Like the guy that writes the bots, like, Hey, it said for research purposes only, even though I made the code be exactly what it would take to break into any website in particular, break into website, <laughs> the bank of America. And then the, the guy that herds them all together goes, well, I didn't know that they were going to be used to do a denial of service attack. So a lot of times they'll try their best to have that plausible deniability. It, it, it often doesn't work. Uh, but when you hear him talking about how innocent they are and how they had no idea that this this was a research project, I clearly stated that. <laughs> it, it's, uh, and sometimes you hear them and you want to believe them. They sound honest, but eh, they're just criminals. Uh, I think we may talk about that more in just a bit uh, in our transition segment. But 
Next one on your list, number five, everybody's favorite ransomware. Now, I am very intimately familiar with ransomware, um, particularly in my previous role with Heat Software slash Avanti, and um, having been one of the CERT team members for the city of Atlanta's Samsam ransomware incident. But for our listeners, and as our guests, what's the difference between ransomware and some of these others we've talked about already? You know, yeah, clearly ransomware really is a warmer or a Trojan, but then encrypts a person's files or system, um, and then ask for money to supply the decryptor decryption key. Uh, and they certainly are getting their heyday, right? A lot of it's run out of uh, Russia and Eastern European places. Mm-hmm out of America, it's big business. They're, you know, they're, it's probably making hundreds of billions of dollars um, and they're very insidious and, you know, it's amazing in that we thought that ransomware is gonna be kind of handled because you can detect ransomware just like you can any virus form. Or oh, yeah. um, they're making a lot of, you know, making a lot of different types. They're self updating 16 times a day to avoid detection. Uh, but, you know, if you have a, a good, solid, tested backup, well, you really shouldn't fear them that much. Turns out kind of a hidden little secret is, hey, we don't really test our backups, <laughs> right? And it turns out you almost have to have a PhD to make sure you have a really solid backup. And so perhaps these people are getting infected. About half the people are paying the ransom. But even when you pay the ransom, it doesn't always work. Uh, usually the ransomware person sends you the key but it's not like they're making these programs to be super bug free, right? These things are just cranking through some type of type of asymmetric, symmetric key encryption, you know, encrypting all these files. And they don't know that when they unlock them, whether or not these files will or won't be corrupted, what state they'll be in. Cause you know, you can't just go up to a computer encrypt all of its files and think it's gonna work. So what we're seeing is uh, somewhere around 20 to 40% of the machines that they decrypt or supply the keys to aren't operational that people still have to rebuild them even if they right. ransom so right. it's, it's a hideous world out there right now yeah and, and the thing with ransomware you you hit on backups absolutely have your backups in place and the reason i say this i am a a how do i want to put it i'm extremely stern when it comes to whether or not to pay the ransom you have absolutely zero guarantee that you're going to get the decryption key if you pay that ransom. If you do pay that ransom, you have absolutely no clue to whom you are actually paying that or what those monies are going towards. Even the FBI stands very firm on this, and I'm a member of the FBI in regard to Roger, are you as well? I'm not a member, but I present and talk to them. Um, okay. I'm in the process of getting a membership. Yeah. Uh, for those of you out there that are security practitioners, I highly encourage you to join the FBI InfraGuard. Put whatever you're seeing in the media about the FBI to rest. This is really working at the field level with field agents and your community of other cybersecurity InfoSec professionals. But 
you know, the FBI is pretty clear about this as well. Their recommendation is not to pay the ransom. And for the very same reasons, you have no guarantee you're going to get your key. You have no idea who you're paying that ransom to or what they're doing with those funds, which on the back end with these criminal organizations, they could be doing everything from weapons and drug sales to human trafficking to just whatever other criminal enterprises they're trying to support drug trafficking etc so number one make sure you have solid backups follow that three two one rule right which is have three copies of your data in two different formats and at least one of them off site that way if you do get hit by ransomware you're able to successfully recover from your backups however do not take backups if you have no intention of testing them right you're not going to test your backups folks don't even bother taking them why would you because most likely what's going to end up happening is you're going to have a system or a group of systems that gets hit with some kind of ransomware let's say samsam or whatever and now all of a sudden you go to recover from your backups that are three months old three weeks old three days old whatever the case may be but they too have also become encrypted as a result of that ransomware infection to the point that even the popular backup applications are now being targeted veeam software which does backup and recovery for primarily virtualized environments but they also do physical backups as well but now veeam is being targeted by some of these ransomware mm -hmm. You know, so they're going after the backups. They're going after those volume shadow copy services uh, backups. They're hitting your snapshots. They're going after your VMs. You know, they're trying to give you absolutely no mechanism. And we're, and we're actually start, we're starting to see where they're asking for the ransom and they're even copying the data first so that if you go, nope, I've got good backups, I don't need to pay you. They're like, well, okay, we're, you're not gonna pay us unencrypted, but you're gonna have to pay us for not dumping it on the web. Right doing yep. a stunning style attack. We're starting to see a little bit more of those happen. Another one just got announced today. You know, the bad guys are going to try to get their money. Yeah, it, whether if it's by extortion or whatever means. And that is one of those uh, threat models that you have to consider. What if we do get a, attacked, but they don't encrypt, they threaten to expose, you know? Yeah, and yeah. that's not just the typical malicious actors but also hacktivists will go after that approach model as well. So let's get, uh, yeah, we are moving on here on time. So let's try to hurry through these last three here. Fileless malware. This is one of the ones that I love. Uh, I should yeah, so, the yeah, that, you know, so great. Yeah, there's always been this malware that could live in memory only, uh, but they had a hard time being what's called persistent. You know, if you rebooted the computer, they'd go away. But what they did, when they say fileless, they typically mean that it's not in a, a standard file, but it could be code that lives and is generated in the registry or some other type of, you know, operational database. Or a lot of times these days, they could be a PowerShell. So they'll, that's very popular, like the Empire PowerShell script, mm -hmm. that thing, scare you to death. But they'll put it in the registry so that the malware gets downloaded each time. Each time the PC is rebooted, the registry will link to something on the internet and download it or to pull it out of, you know, some other non-traditional file type. And they've been around forever, 
uh, but those are certainly increasing for a lot of different reasons. But the main one is, is that they're a little bit harder to detect because most of the malware engines aren't scanning those items. They're starting to scan them. Uh, that, that's the main reason they're around. But I think ultimately in the long run, we'll be able to de detect them because as they become more popular, the AV engines will have to scan the places where they hide. And there's like, there's like a hundred different places they can hide uh, on a typical Windows PC. And on Linux and Unix, it's like, you know, like 60. Uh, but uh, I don't. I think long term they're not going to be the hugest threats because we're going to detect them just like we do the fileless viruses. But right now they're increasing in size, harder to detect. Right. So moving on with adware, then this one, you know, you would think some of these highly credible, uh, reputable websites would do more on the front end to ensure that their ad networks are secure. But talk to us about this, this type of threat and, and malware that we're of, seeing. It's a, you know, so adware, I think in the traditional sense, was just malware, a Trojan or a worm or something that tried to redirect your browsing activities to where they wanted you to. Like somebody like a, you know, like, you know, some big company like a Kmart or something would hire somebody going, hey, we've got a new website. You know, we want to redirect hits to it. And the marketing company would go, oh, we'll be glad to do it. And they would call the online marketer and then they would know that the online marketer was a little bit dubious, great hatter, or maybe they didn't, they weren't bad, but the person they hired, oh yeah, we can get you a million hits to that website. They didn't know that these guys were rolling out malware that modified people's computers to push them to particular website places. And sometimes they wouldn't push them there, but they would, uh, the PC would do an open browser session, hidden browser session pushing to that website so that everybody would get paid and really the person wouldn't be pushed there. But on top of that, you do have these huge ad networks. You know, most websites, the average, uh, you know, major website has 50 to 100 different <coughs> all over the internet. Uh, many, many of them are ad networks and each of them, each of those links, again, 50 to 100 different links in a, on a standard web page view. If you've ever, you know, fired up some type of tool that 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 showed you every file that got downloaded when you went to you know amazon.com or whatever it happens to be you'll see it's like just things links from 100 different places and any of those links can be compromised by the bad guy and then inject code onto people's machines there's actually entire companies that exist only to monitor all of those ad networks and linking sites you know the sites are the types of things that like you know, you, you know, you'll, you'll be on your computer and you'll go to Home Depot and research a grill. And the next thing you know, your mobile phone is showing you a whole lot of ads for grills, right? For the next two weeks. Or I hear people say, oh, I said the word, you know, Barbie at the, you know, someone came over to my house and said the word Barbie and Alexa kicked on. The next thing you know, their cell phone showing them a bunch of Barbie ads. All right. That's what that's what makes the internet. The internet is pretty much driven by porn, advertisement, and email. <laughs> that's and ads are really what's driving it all. And so the bad guys are like, oh, there's 50 to 100 links on the average website that I can possibly infect. I'll choose the weakest link and then be able to infect all the visiting customers. Yep. And this particular one is actually tied to our next right in, in a certain degree, and that's malvertising where yeah. it's not just driving traffic, but now we're talking about something kind of like the best of web that I talked about earlier in this episode, where now we're seeing these 
credible networks, right? So things like Spotify and the New York Times. Uh, I think you also mentioned the London Stock Exchange. You know, all becoming victims of malvertising. Yeah, so yeah. let's talk about that and how malvertising is actually infecting these systems. What takes place? What has to take place? And what happens as a result? Yeah. So again, they infect one of these advertising links and networks again, and the people that that run these websites have no clue. They have no clue about everything that's running on their website. If someone on a website tells you they know everything that's running on their website, it's either a very small website or they're just kind of lying to you, just like they say that they test their backups. Uh, so they have they don't have a clue. It gets infected. It's a it's major. It's a you know it's a multi billion dollar market. This isn't just kids playing around. Th these are international companies worth millions of dollars that spend their days infecting other people's ad networks to spread malware. And it hits every major website you can think of. And they're there, maybe they're only there for 10 or 15 minutes a day. They spread their malware, it injects it, usually it injects JavaScript. And then a visiting browser gets that injected JavaScript that redirects them to some other place. It could be a lookalike website. It could be, sometimes they inject code, still the person's Visa, you know, MasterCard information along with CVV code. And they're very sophisticated. They actually look to see if a person that's coming to visit, they're like, oh, they're a McAfee or, you know, some type of antivirus vendors uh, visiting that website to see if it has a Trojan and they'll uninstall themselves or redirect the, the visitor to a clean page. They're only there for minutes to maybe 15 minutes. And they come back the next day and they got 30 different ways in. It's a very sophisticated game. And this is one of the reasons, folks, why it is so critical to make sure that you are staying on top of third-party patching as well. Because so many of the vulnerabilities that we're talking about in the exploits are a result of, you know, something like Flash Player or the browser itself having some unpatched vulnerability that's being exposed and exploited with this type of attack. Uh, vector. So, you know, think about drive-by downloads where you can visit a very credible website that unfortunately has an ad network that has been compromised. And with these drive-by downloads that you did also mention in your article, you know, with some of these types, you don't even have to click anywhere on the page. You don't have to even hover over the ad or click the ad. It just has to render with a unpatched vulnerability in the Flash player. And all of a sudden you have, going back to our one of our previous ones, some fileless in-memory injection malware that's now executing on that system. And the end user hasn't done anything other than go to you know XYZ website. So again, making sure that you're patching your third-party applications, including things like Java, Flash Player, your browsers, etc., um, make sure that you're including that as part of your overall patch management framework. Lastly, to round it out, and it, it's kind of ironic how t our last two here kind of tie into what we had for our top three cyber clusters of the week. But let's talk about spyware. Um, what do you got for us on spyware, Roger? 
Yeah, so spyware is a, you know, again, it's something that's going to get in your system, try to spy on you or what you're doing. They can, you know, some of the spyware even, you know, turns on your camera, you know, and sometimes it's this insidious dude that's trying to get pictures of, you know, teenage girls. Uh, but a lot of times they're just, you know, they're financially motivated in a lot of cases or trying to get intellectual property. And so the, the spyware is just out there trying to, you know, spy on you one way or another. They can turn on listening devices, maybe in a corporate, you know, boardroom, they turn on microphones, uh, you know, or they're in there, you know, so they could be trying to get some intellectual property, find out what's going on with something. Um, maybe they're capturing, you know, legal case arguments and trying to sell it to the opposition, you know, and things like that. So it's, a, you know, whatever they can do to spy on you. Well, thanks. All right, so that kind of rounds out our nine types of malware as uh, Roger has published on or in his CSO online article, and we will include a link to that in our show notes. So if you're listening or, or watching from either the cyberspeaks.com website or um, from our anchor dot fm we'll have those show notes in there as well so definitely link into that now roger everything that we just talked about you know we have all kinds of malicious actors and such out there we also have some folks that are the heroes and then we have some that we have no idea what they are um we just came across the two-year anniversary uh may 12th of this year for the WannaCry outbreak, which for those of you that are listening that may be unfamiliar, um, kind of surprising, but uh, WannaCry was a ransomware variant that spread like wildfire using some known vulnerabilities in the Windows operating system along with some uh, tools from our own government here in the United States, the NSA and continue to propagate to the point where it hit over 150 countries and over 300,000 systems globally. Now, the reason I'm bringing this up is, you know, it's the two-year anniversary. There's just two questions that I have for you, Roger. The first one, and I'll take these one at a time, but the first one, do you think we have learned from our mistakes with WannaCry? Do you think uh, the typical corporate environment or even government agencies learn from that experience and have done anything to help improve their security posture as a result? Uh, not much. I mean, so I've been doing this 32 years and every year it just gets worse, right? We claim to think we've learned something, but the truth is we haven't learned much. I mean, like, Right now, Internet of Things, IoT is getting ready to take off and it's going to be more vulnerable and more vulnerabilities than ever. Uh, I mean, I think there were some lessons learned. I think some companies got some more cybersecurity insurance and are trying to make sure that it doesn't exclude social engineering or malware and acts of war. I, I think it was a bit of a wake up of nation state attacks, right? It was one. There's been a few nation state attacks. WannaCry was a nation state attack, uh, just like Stuxnet was. Uh, so I think it was an increase, uh, you know, uh, awareness that cyber warfare really is happening now. And it's even having real war, uh, you know, responses. Israel actually fired on, uh, you know, uh, on um, one of their enemies based upon a cyber warfare attack last week, you know, and 
and uh, so that's always kind of interesting. But um, a little lesson was learned, most of it not. We're actually pretty horrible. It's uh, you know you were talking about that. You know we need to get security first. Security isn't anywhere in there first. No matter you know it's a bunch of it's a bunch of talk. Uh, and it's really, security is not binary. It's really along a continuum. And there's a pendulum of security versus usability. And I think the pendulum has moved a little bit more towards security, but it's not anywhere close enough to, for us to actually be secure. I mean, the average company uh, can be broken into at will by any penetration tester that tries to break into it, right? I mean, that's the sad state of affairs today. Our defenses are so porous uh, that we're being asked to have a default defensive uh, strategy of assume breach, right? You have to assume you've been breached, right. it could be breached. It's pretty bad right now. And um, I've been waiting for 32 years for it to get better. And so far it just kind of gets worse every year. Well, I guess we have job security then, right? Two yeah. million <laughs> cybersecurity jobs going unfilled according to some recent estimates. But back to WannaCry, um, Marcus Hutchins, who is um, credited with shutting down the WannaCry outbreak. In reality, he um, registered a domain name, not even knowing what he's doing, just saw a domain string in the code, registered it, and then several hours later kind of figured out, oh, it's, you know, stopping this. That raises some questions for me. And I was very participatory from almost hour one dealing with this outbreak. Ended up having to give an emergency session at a Microsoft conference that was taking place that following uh, Sunday through, I, I wanna say it was a Wednesday or Thursday of that week. WannaCry hit May 12th, uh, uh, 2017 and that was a Friday. So as folks are leaving and getting ready to go to this conference, they're finding out, oh, you know, crap, this stuff is going on. So we ended up having an emergency sh session there. I'm very familiar with the ins and outs of this and some of the early interviews that Marcus was giving and some of the comments that were made. Now, you know, fast forward a few months, he's in Vegas attending you know, cybersecurity conference and gets tapped on the shoulder as he's getting ready to leave by the uh, FBI to basically arrest him for some of his earlier works where we're not so heroic, where he was basically charged with the manufacture and sale of these matwares that we're talking about, right? And mm -hmm. um, just recently he has, uh, pled guilty to two of the 10 charges against him and is awaiting awaiting sentencing in July. So I have one question and I'll allow you to elaborate on, on it as you need, but Marcus Hutchins and the WannaCry outbreak, hero or zero? Uh, I'm, I, unfortunately, maybe kind of like your law enforcement background, um, I, I don't like criminals. I don't like people doing criminal acts. Uh, I don't believe in gray hats. You're either a white hat or a black hat. If you're a gray hat, you're a black hat. Um, and, you know, we, my sense is we only know a tip of the iceberg of what Marcus Hutchins was involved in, right? Um, 
but this is what I can say is that I'm not a friend of hackers that do criminal acts or unethical acts. I'm not. I'm not right. a hacktivist that break into companies. I'm about ethical things and ethical hacking and, uh, and being law abiding. I've spent my life trying to fight them. Um, we all, when you're a hacker and you have the opportunity and you can hack, I think we've all had friends going, hey, can you help me hack into you know, my girlfriend's Facebook account or this or that? You kind of very early have to choose whether you're going to be, you know, use your powers for good or evil. And, I, you know, I hope that most people choose them for good. And then when you choose for good, you can't do anything unethical. You really can't do it because, again, that then makes you one of the bad guys. Now, with that said, there are hackers that got caught and then reformed themselves and truly became white hat hackers. Unfortunately, I know far more that said they were reformed and maybe too quickly said they were reformed and then behind the scenes became gray hat, black hats again. That, and so I'm a little bit dubious about hiring previous black hats and gray hats. But I do know of hackers that were truly black hats that completely reformed themselves and changed. And if you tried to get them to do something illegal today, they just wouldn't do it. I mean, case in point, uh, <laughs> sir, no before Gavin Mitnick, you know, he uh, got in trouble in the 1990s for hacking. And, uh, you know, a big thing was uh, free Kevin Mitnick, you know, free Kevin Mitnick. He's in jail too long. I actually wrote a column back then for InfoWorld saying, don't free Kevin Mitnick, put him in jail, right? Make an example. Wow. But I was also, after he got out, I think he was in jail for a couple of years or whatever. Long ago, a long time ago, I wrote another column saying, hey, he's reformed. I've talked to him. I've seen what he's doing. He's a reformed guy, right? He's not the same 16, 19 year old kid that got busted for the, for the crazy hacking thrills that he did. And today I can call him a friend and I can tell you for sure, you cannot get that man to do something illegal. You know, his, in his joke, what I love, he says, I get the same thrill from doing penetration testing today that I did when I was illegally hacking. The only difference is it's more paperwork. Paper. <laughs> right. Because he's got to produce a report. So the only thing I'll say about Marcus Hutchins is he said he's reformed. He's apologized for what he did. Uh, you know, I, I would, of course, love to hear a full accounting of what he really did. And, uh, because if I'm going to trust somebody, I want to hear what they really did. Uh, but, you know, I think there's a chance he can turn around, and I hope he does. We need smart people on our side. Uh, we just need to make sure that they stay on the white hat side, because uh, every once in a while people say they are on our side, and then they've kind of behind the scenes turned turn back. And I know far more of those people that set the white hats that kind of still did bad stuff, you know, at night. Yeah, I'm with you. And from what I understand, these charges against Marcus were things that happen at 17 years of age and around, you know, his turning of legal age here in the States, you know, so do we turn a blind eye because of the innocence of youth and poor judgment or, you know, do we uh, charge him as an adult, convict him as an adult, have him serve time here in the United States where we're paying for it and everything else, or do we ship his ass back to the UK and let them deal with him? Yeah, I don't. So what I'll say is, is he being fully honest with us or is he still running a scam on us saying that, hey, it was all done in the past. You know, I'm not that guy from that many years ago. If it's all true, everything he's saying, you know, great. Give him a benefit of the doubt. He's a reformed guy. Put him on our side. But uh, I don't know. There's some weird thing where I'm just not feeling super comfortable that he's still being completely forthcoming. 
The floor is open if there's any questions for Roger or myself. Please go ahead. I'm actually going to mute all again. Just unmute yourself. Feel free to ask those questions now. I'll tell you while we're waiting for questions, I'll just add something. The two, the most important thing to remember about all malware, all of it, no matter what it is, is that it typically impact, infects us one of two ways. It's through social engineering of some type or unpatched software. Social engineering is responsible for 70 to 90% of all malicious data breaches and unpatched software is 40 to 60%. Uh, and they've been the two biggest causes by far. Everything else only adds up to everything. Every other attack you can think of is only like a 1% attack. Um, and it's been away for two decades. And sometimes unpatched software is number one. Sometimes social engineering is number one. For the last seven years, social engineering has been number one by far. If you want to stop the majority of the risk in your environment, focus harder on stopping social engineering attacks and patch your software better, particularly the internet browser and operating system things. And on, on your servers, it's web servers, database software, management software, and operating system. If you concentrate on those two things, unpatched software and stopping social engineering, you will get rid of 90 to 99% of your risk. The yep. reason our industry is so horrible today is that we're trying to concentrate on 100 things like bubbles and a glass of champagne, when the reality is that if you focus better on the top two things, which are the majority of the risk, you'd be far better off. And I mean that personally or at your company. Absolutely. And... You know, unfortunately, you can't patch humans, but you can train them. And you can patch your software. And to further Roger's point there, if you look at all the vulnerabilities as published by Modernist, CVDetails.com, over the past three or four years, no more than 16% of all the published vulnerabilities have been attacked in the Microsoft platform. And when I say that, I mean the Microsoft operating systems, Office, Edge, Internet Explorer, Skype for Business, you name it. If it's got Microsoft's name attached to the executable, no more than 15% of all, excuse me, 16 of all the known vulnerabilities have been going after Microsoft. So I'll, I'll go further. I'll go further. All uh, right. Here there were 16,555 separate vulnerabilities announced. Mm -hmm. About 10 to 12 of them were actually used in the wild to attack actual companies. And it's that way every year. You don't have to worry about everything in the world. Even your know, Microsoft exploits um, in a given year, Microsoft has typically in a given year about 130, 150 separate vulnerabilities announced. Uh, yeah. In the Linux Unix world, it's about 800. But the reality is, is that the vast majority of your risk is the same 10, 12 programs year after year after year. And again, you you need to concentrate on securing the internet browser programs. Doesn't hurt to do the operating system. Um, and then on servers, it's it's web servers, database server software, management software, and the operating system software. If you concentrate on those four things, your servers probably won't get broken into. There's always the outlier. And the same thing, again, think about this, out of, out of 100,000 possible vulnerabilities over the last you know, 10, 12 years, less than 2%, less than 2% actually ever get exploited in the wild. And in the average company, it's only a, hand, a handful or two of things that attack almost every company each year. All right, excellent.
Well, Roger, um, we are actually just a little bit over time here, but I want to thank you so much for coming out this evening, joining us, going through all these malware types and, and helping educate everyone and just refresh some of those that may be familiar with it. Before we leave, I would like to uh, give you an opportunity just to tell us quickly about know before and kind of what you guys are doing, services that you're offering, etc. So real quick again, uh, know before is the world's largest security awareness training vendor. And uh, we do simulated phishing testing. We offer a cloud platform. Um, you know, I was talking about how I worked at Microsoft for actually 15 years and I did lots of stuff. I did PKIs, uh, Active Directory. If you, I was one of the, probably the most prolific PKI installer, installers in the world. I did a lot of multi-factor authentication installs. I secured Active Directory. I was the best group policy person. I did all these things. At the end of the day, when I got through putting all these advanced things and securing Active Directory and doing multi-factor authentication and putting in PKIs, all of those customers were just as vulnerable after I left as they were before. And it was very frustrating to be, you know, supposedly one of the best in the world at what I did and they still got infected, but they were never getting infected because of, you know, of the initial infection was never because they had insecure Active Directory or they didn't have multi-factor authentication. It was that they're most of the time their employees were being socially engineered and you can have the best software, best patching procedures in the world, best Active Directory security, best group policies, uh, best, you know, firewalls or whatever. But if your end users get socially engineered, it's game over, right? It, the, the, that stuff, that malware makes it past all your defenses. So I actually got depressed the last couple of years of my uh, time at Microsoft and I eventually left and I, I decided to go to know before. I want to go to a place that could most quickly uh, help people reduce the risk the fastest. And what I can tell you for sure, uh, I'm not a salesman, but I can tell you that most customers that come with know before take their fish clicking percentage from about a third down to 2% in about a year. And wow. it's, you know, if social engineering is the vast majority of the risk and, and it's not just training, you have to have technical control, right? You have to have filters and mm. you know, other and firewalls and antivirus. You need to have technical controls to try to put down the phishing spam attacks, but you also do need the training component. And what I've seen, I'm a data-driven dude. My last book is called uh, Data-Driven Computer Security Defense. Uh, it talks about getting data to drive your defense. And I can't think of, I, I truly cannot think of another computer security control you can put in place that will give you as much decrease in security risk as better training your employees. And add to that, patching your platforms. You do those two things. Better train your employees not to be fished or socially engineered, better patch the stuff that needs to be patching, and you won't get hacked for the most part. Absolutely. All right, Roger, thank you so much for joining us this evening. Uh, one Bye. more note before we close off. For B-Sides San Antonio, which you see me wearing the shirt here. Again, big shout out to the guys joining me last week from the B-Sides San Antonio team, along with Mr. Jack Daniel, one of the co-founders of the whole B-Sides movement, was on the show last week. If you missed that, uh, feel free to check it out on our website, cyberspeaks.com, or from anchor.fm. That will publish it into all of your favorite podcast listening platforms, or you can listen to it live there on the web. 
If you're not already registered, I'd encourage you to go to bsidessatx.com and get yourselves registered. So with that, we're going to wrap this one up. Another great week. Thank you for listening in and we will see and hear from you next week on Cyber Speaks Live. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Cyber Speaks Live. Remember to visit our blog at cyberspeaks.com to sign up for our newsletter of upcoming episodes and special guest co-hosts. If you'd like to be a guest co-host or sponsor the show, please email us at speakup at cyberspeaks.com. That's all for this week. And as always, stay safe and secure out there.